You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. If you have your Bibles, if you would, turn to Daniel chapter 1. Um, Daniel chapter 1. If, if you were here last week, you may have remembered that um, I, um, I um, did a message last week called um, Faith in a Hostile World. Um, my intention today is to um, continue along that line and share something that's very much related to faith in a hostile world. Um, my prayer is that uh, as, you, as you hear the heart of the message, you will, um, you will see where we are as a as, a, as a, um, a group of believers, you'll see what we are as the church at large. You'll see that there is a, that there is surely, surely a pressure that is being applied to us right now that, um, that although through history has happened before, but even so in our current time more so, um, there are norms that are being, that are being created and being pushed toward, pushed upon us. There are things that we've been asked to compromise and, 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 and give way to and our response as believers should be to hold our ground. And so with this being said, today I want to talk about, um, last week we talked about faith in a hostile world. And so to be more specific and to give you more of an example and more of an exemplary um, look at what it means to have faith in a hostile world, we're going to talk about, and more importantly, resolve in a hostile world. Um, if you remember from last week, um, in fact, before I do that, let me, let me, let's read. I'm sorry. I, I, forgive me for getting ahead of myself here. But um, if you are in Daniel, say amen. 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 And if as you're in Daniel, go to chapter, I mean, go to chapter one, look at verse eight. And if you would, just kind of read along with me, if you would. And let's, and let's look at this example of, um, of Daniel. It says this in um, Daniel chapter one, starting at verse eight, it says, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord and the king who has appointed your food and your drink and for why should he why should he see your faces looking more haggard among I mean than the youths that are I mean who are your age? Then you would make me forfeit, me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer to whom the to whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and, your, and the appearance of, of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. Let's stop right there. Um, let's pray just one more time, if you would. Um, Lord, bless the, bless the preaching of this word. God, let it, let it prick our minds and our hearts. Let us receive it how you've meant for us to receive it. And God, help us to go away, God, challenged to be um, stronger believers with more resolve, ready to, ready to um, live for you no matter what. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you remember from, la- if you remember from last week, we explored basically in, this, in, in the message of faith in a hostile world, we explored basically what's at stake when it comes to our, our, um, as our um, legacy as believers. 
Um, if you remember from last week, and I'll just repeat the points quickly, um, one of the first things we know that is on the line is the favor of God. We know that from the, fa- the favor of God is critical from, from the leadership that we choose to the, um, the moral compass that we, that we choose to live by. We see that we must protect our spiritual values, which is the second thing, which have been passed from faithful men and the word of God so that we can share them with other faithful men as time goes on. We also figure out that our spiritual identity is what distinguishes believers from the world, and without it, we're just like everyone else. And why must we hold on to our, and why must we hold on to the, the spiritual favor of God, to the, to the spiritual values of God, and, and to the spiritual identity that God has given us? Because if we don't, we risk compromising to an ungodly world who has no good for us. And so my hope is that as we look at those points and as we continue to move on, I want to, I want to look at this example of David. But I mean, not David, I'm sorry, Daniel. But now let me refresh you on the background of, how, of what Daniel is going through. First of all, you see that they're under tremendous pressure because as the Israelites or the Hebrews are caught in captivity, they've been shipped off to Babylon a godless nation that has, I mean, that simply wants to make them slaves and make them slaves to their religion, to their culture, and to everything in between. They want to totally wipe their legacy as being God believers off the map. And so in particular, there are four men who were chosen as, as, as lively youths. There's, um, once again, there's, um, you got Daniel, you have Hananiah, you have Mishael, and you have Azariah. You have these men who the king chooses because they look good and they're smart and they have all this wisdom and they have the capability of attaining so much knowledge that they take them into captivity and make them eunuchs. And so then they're under governmental pressure to conform to the, norm, the norms of a new society by extreme persuasion and coercion. And see, the, and, it's, and it's really simple. The choice was laid down before them. They need, needed to resolve to follow God or they had to conform to the new standard without God. And since we've looked at the state of God, as we've looked at the state of God, I mean, of, of God believers in Babylon, I think it's now that we turn to a more specific example. And in this case, that would be Daniel. Now, as we look at this, remember last week I mentioned an example about what it means when somebody dives into the deep sea and how as you go down into the deep sea, there's more pressure. And see, without, your, without, human, without any type of human technology, if you try to swim to the deep, what happens is the pressure from the ocean is so tough, it collapses on you. And so I said that if, if for instance, when, the, when people went to sea with the Titanic, when they tried to look for the wreckage of the Titanic, they went down in small capsules. Now, here's the beauty of the capsules. They were able to go down deeper than they would, than they could, if they could humanly possibly go by themselves. But here's the thing. The, there was pressure on the outside of the capsule, but here's the thing. The pressure on the inside of the capsule was greater than the, capsule, I mean, than the pressure on the outside of the capsule. Now, here's the point behind all of this. As we looked at that, as we looked at that example, we looked at the fact and say, hey, listen, the ocean, the ocean is going to give us pressure. We can't change that. The deeper we dive into the, into the pressure, it collapses around us. But we also have to remember that greater is the power that's in us than the things that are trying to influence everything around us. Amen? And so here's the thing. Pressure is coming. Pressure is here. No longer can we say, oh, no, 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 that's not my problem. Oh, no, 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 they don't mean me. They don't mean that. Listen, the pressure to conform to, to ungodly standards is here. And as a believer, you have to choose 
which way will you stand? And I submit to you that the way you choose to stand will define who you are as a believer or not. And so what this being said, we look, at the, we look at the example of Daniel and we understand this, living a life of faith with an increasingly hostile world is tough, but we must resolve to hold the standards of God. We have to. Let me, let me put it to you in a very practical way. Any basketball fans in here? No? Okay. All right. All right. So if, if, if you've been slightly entertained to watch blowouts like the Cavs versus the Raptors, um, you know, it's... It, you know, you notice that, you know, you have a great play on the floor, LeBron James, right? Now, here's the best thing about LeBron James. LeBron James is able to do great things within the boundaries of the game, right? He's able to do great things within the boundaries of the game. Now, here's the thing. What good would it be to watch an NBA playoff game is when somebody misses a layup, they go, oh, here you go. Here, take the ball and just go ahead and just get right up under. Here, I'll lift you up and you can dunk it in, right? <laughs> right? Or let's say you had a defender who was just tough and he was like, hey, move out the way and let him shoot, right? We don't like a game because people move the rules and standards. We enjoy the game because the standards are there and people play within the standards. In the same way, we as believers, the world is called to live in, within godly standards. But we don't do that sometimes, do we? As a world, right? What do we do? We move the standard. It's the equivalent to LeBron James saying, you know what? I can't make three-pointers. Pull that basket over here, right? Let me dunk that because I can't shoot three-pointers, right? That's what the world is asking you to do. The standard that God has set they're asking you to move it, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's impeding our progress. It's keeping us from doing what we want. Because think about it. If you can't beat the standard, what's the best, next best thing? You change it. You change it, right? But now here's the problem. Daniel realizes that he serves a holy God who has set a standard and doesn't plan on changing that. And so with that being said, we see Daniel... In verse 8, when he looks, he said, it says in the very first beginning of verse 8, listen, if you've, listen, I encourage you to go back and read 1 through 7. If you haven't read, I mean, if you haven't heard the message from last week, I encourage you to go listen to it because this is really a follow-up and addendum to that. Um, but in verse 8, it says right off the bat, it says that Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice meat. Da um, Daniel immediately stands fast and says, no. I will not move the standard. I will not do anything more than what my God has allowed me to do. But see, here's the thing. What he is saying is he has resolve. What he is saying is there is, he has made up his mind. This is the standard. This is where he stands. And from this point, this is where he shall not move. All right? Now, we live in a culture today that tells you, listen, if your standards don't match up with the rest of the world, you need to change your standards because you're the weirdo. But now we have a God who created the earth, the heavens and the earth. We have a God who has set standards in place. It only makes sense that we as believers who say we love God follow the standards. In the same way, my daughter, who I love very much, my daughter cannot say, Daddy, I love you, but I think you need to, I, but I think you need to start letting me do whatever I want to do because that's the only way I can tell that you love me, right? 
I can't do that. I have to toe the line. I have to hold a standard. And this is what Daniel is saying to the people of Babylon. And so the question becomes, as we see, as we see Daniel show this resolve, I want to point out what really creates resolve in a believer. What really creates resolve in a believer? Because Daniel had some strong resolve. And I think that there are some things that he did throughout the um, chap- I mean, chapter one that prove that, um, that uh, the things that, that prove out or show that he had resolve. And one of the first things that he did was he had discipline in the small things. If you look at verse eight, right? You look at this idea that he has the king's meat before him, right? And, with, and he doesn't drink any of the wine. He sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. So now as David, I mean, I'm sorry, I keep saying David, but Daniel made up his mind that he should not defile himself. When we look at that, most of us would have been like, well, I mean, is that really that big of a deal? I mean, it's just food, right? Isn't it just food? Now keep in mind where he is, right? He's, he's in a foreign country, right? They, he was just literally stripped and taken from there. He has no money in all these things, so he couldn't just stop by a vending machine and say, well, you know, let me stop by the kosher vending machine, grab a couple of things, and then we're going to head on over into Babylon, right? No. He had what he had. And you see, what we, when we see this thing, we go, when we see it, we say, you know, most of us have been taught that the little things are not worth sweating. You know, you see something like, ah, oh, never, let, let, it, let it go. No, it's all right. I mean, he ain't doing nothing. He ain't bothering nobody, right? But now here's the issue. In God's economy, the little things are big matters. God reminds us in his word that those who are faithful and few become rulers over many. That's in Matthew chapter 25, verse 23. But truth be told, many of us would look at Daniel's stance and say, what's the big deal with him eating the food? It's just food. He doesn't have anything else to eat. Why not? The king is so powerful, we should do what he says or he'll hurt us. He needs to calm down. He's making us look crazy. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound very familiar? Those are some of the things that we hear even with among ourselves as believers. But yet, the issue was not, the, was not just the food. The issue was what the food would do to him. In verse 8, it says that he sought the permission from the officials that he may not defile himself. The issue was the defilement. Now, in, the, in Hebrew, the picture of defilement is this idea of pollution, something being polluted or something being stained. And so in Daniel's mind, eating the food, eating the food was concerning to his spirit, was, was, um, was, was critical to his spiritual values. The food the king got was more than likely sacrificed to gods against his kosher diet or his, his kosher Hebrew diet. It gave the appearance that he was um, fellowshipping with the culture. So now here's the thing. We can say, oh, yeah, no, it was just food. But to Daniel, the issue was bigger. To, for him, accepting the food that was there was, in, was, in, was basically putting him in cahoots with the, with the ungodly world that had enslaved him. Does everybody, is everybody still following me? And so here's the thing. By Eastern standards, to share a meal with someone was to commit someone to friendship with them. It was, a covenant, it was of a covenantal significance. And so if he had just sat and taken the food, knowing all the things that he knew, he would have violated the law of God. Therefore, he would have sinned against God. And that was the problem. Daniel did not object. And here's the thing. As you go back and look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, 
you see this. You see, Daniel did not object to his name, to the new name given to him. Because remember, we talked about how when they got to Babylon, their names were changed to, to worship pagan gods, right? D- Daniel didn't object to the given name it was given because he knew who he was. Daniel did not object to the Babylonian education because he knew what he believed. But Daniel did object to the food from the king's table because eating it was in direct disobedience to God and his standards. And so with that being said, you have to think about, think about this in a more, a more modern application. If this is hard for you to grasp, let me give you a little bit, let me give you a little bit more to hang on here. You see, in a more modern context, we're all works in progress, right? The Lord is sanctifying us all, isn't he? But sometimes we fail to see the critical nature of our shortcomings by cloaking them in various labels and various assumptions. Let me give you a few of them. Sometimes we preach, teach, and sing the truth of God in our public life, yet fail to yield ourselves to him in our private lives. We encourage others to be healthy while we continually practice unhealthy habits because it's so hard. The church me, home me, and work me don't even seem to know each other. In fact, they've never met. That's a huge, huge problem. You're very friendly among those in the congregation who are your friends, but you have a spouse at home who you treat like an inconvenient necessity. You you know you need them, but you can't stand interacting with them. You get lazy when it comes to dealing with undesired people and tasks in your life. And you push them and they push you to your limits. You'd rather give them special labels and give them special excuses rather than to face them all on your own. God wants us to be concerned about the little things in our lives. Our character is not built simply on the huge stands we make in our lives. They're built in the seemingly smaller, insignificant moments. Now, to prove this point, I want everybody to turn to um, second, um, for 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Hold your finger on Daniel and then go over to 1 Samuel chapter 17. As you look at the story, you'll real, recognize the very familiar story. Um, it's the story of David and Goliath. Right? We knew that the, Philist- that the Philistines were, were, outnum- were basically had a champion named Goliath and they were going against the armies of the Lord in Israel. Well, here's the problem. Goliath was like, was like Sha- Shaquille O'Neal on steroids. So nobody had the guts to go out there and face him except for David. Now, you got to keep in mind, David is not like a LeBron James type, all right? David is like me, a lot smaller, all right? And not only that, he goes out there with basically a stick, a pouch, and a rock and says, I'm going to get this guy, right? But now the question is, where did he get the confidence to face such a guy, right? Where did he get the confidence? As you're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 17, look at verse 34 through 36. Here's what it says. But David, and this is him talking to Saul, he says, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When the lion or bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it. Now, Tim, wait, let me stop right there. How many of you guys have gotten the courage? You saw a bear or a lion, you said, come here, right? You ran out there, come here, I'm going to get you, come here, right? That's an extraordinary person all in itself, right? I'm not a lion chaser in that case, in that, in that, in that regard, right? There's some people who may hunt like that, but listen, I'm not the person who's going to be like, come here, come here. I'm like, listen, you over there, I'm over here, 
We're never going to meet. Unless we're in a zoo and there's a lot of thick gate and plexiglass, all right? That's the only time we meet, all right? Um, now let's keep going. It says, so after I, in verse 35, it says, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from his mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair. Wait a minute. Wait, stop there, guys. Now, I, so, so some of you guys would look at this story and go, oh, I mean, yeah, we know he killed one bear. No, it says that, first of all, he chased it down. That takes a whole lot of different resolve, right? Well, secondly, it says when it turned around and tried to get at him, he said, huh. How many of you guys are grabbing lines by the mane? How many of you guys are looking at bears and saying, you know what? Come on. You want it? Come here. Come here. I'm going to show you something, right? None of you guys, are, well, none of us are doing it. I, I don't know. Doug, are you? Okay, okay. I just want to make sure. Um, but, but yeah, so you see that he has some very strong resolve. And so then it says, and I seized it by its hair. I struck it and I killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and a bear. This uncircumcised, this uncircumcised Philistine will be one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. So when David saw Goliath, he said, oh yeah, bear line. And I remember what happened last time I fought them, I won. Now he did recognize now that it was because of the Lord. Okay, I want to make sure everybody get that. He wasn't just saying, oh man, listen, I'm, I'm practically bear grills. No, he wasn't saying that. What he was saying was, man, yeah, it was tough but it's because of the Lord that I was able to overcome. And so then knowing with that experience and under his belt, he says, listen, because I fought a lion and a bear, hey, that giant guy out there that y'all are all scared of, no problem, no problem. But now guess what? Imagine if he had approached the lion and the bear differently. Imagine if he had a, took a different stance with the lion and the bear, the stance I probably would have taken, right? <laughs> Run. But, um, but, but imagine that, guys. He wouldn't have the resolve to stand against a giant. And, and listen, if you go on and read the story of 1 Samuel 17, he was bold, okay? David was pretty much a kid. And he even said to him, he said, listen, you know what? I'm, you know what? Keep talking. I'm going to take your sword and cut off your head. Just saying, that's a lot of strong resolve, okay? Reggie, what are you getting at? I'm saying this. God is putting a whole bunch of smaller moments in your life that he's using to build up your character and your resolve. The question is, what are you doing with them? Are you saying, oh, that's not going to be my problem. I ain't going to never worry about that. Y'all just, just go on and do whatever you're going to do, right? Or are, you, or are you seizing the moment, recognizing that the Lord is trying to teach you something in a moment? I guess, and here's the thing. Often when the Lord is teaching us in those smaller moments, we don't recognize that. But we have to be willing and obedient vessels, just being willing to do what the Lord has called us to do, right? There are times in my life when the Lord is trying to create or create character in me, and I'm resistant. And truth be told, we all are sometimes, right? But God is saying, listen, I'm using this moment to prepare you for the next. The trials and tribulations that you go through, God is using those to prepare you for the next. This is not a random this is not a random placed event in time that you just had to experience at one moment. This is God getting you ready for the next stage. Now, what that looks like, I don't know sometimes. But God is getting you ready. And make no mistake about it, God is giving you these experiences that you're having because he wants to prepare you for something even bigger. You see... It's because that David had practice against the blind, the bear, and the field 
that he was able to stand against Goliath. David's resolve against Goliath was not gained, once again, on one single encounter. He had seen God work in his life under similar circumstances, and he, and he chose to seize the moment and do what needed to be done. Are you hoping for the courage to stand in the day of adversity, or are you making the small decisions daily that would help you strengthen your resolve, I mean, to yourself and to God? Because keep in mind, God putting you in a situation, it will do two things. Number one, it's going to build you up. Number two, it's going to glorify and honor God. And so my hope is that with every moment that you have to make those small decisions, those insignificant things, whether it be from whether your child comes up to you and snags you on the, snags you on the pants and like, play with me, play with me, or whether it's someone who comes to you and says they need help and you're like, oh, but I'm too busy or I'm tired or whatever it may be. Maybe those are moments God is trying to use to mold you and shape you for an encounter that you're going to have later. How many times have you ever been into a situation where you look back and you go, whew, man, if I had never did this, man, this would have been so much harder. God has you in that stage right now. God is trying to mold and shape your resolve right now through the smaller things in your life. In addition to having discipline in the small things, you must also strive to display courage. Looking at verses 8 through, nine, I mean, 8 through 10, it says, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine that he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials um, that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid, my lord, the king, who has appointed your, who, mean, who has appointed your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head. But now look how Daniel responds. He says, he said to the overseer, he said, please test your servants as you go on to verse 12. When you look at the request of Daniel, it seems pretty harmful to some degrees. But in today, but think about this compared to today's restaurants. In today's restaurants, we have multiple options catering to different tastes. Whether you're a meat eater, vegan, or only eat 100% free organic, or farm-raised, or, or cage-free, or gluten-free, or whatever, right? You have all these choices. But in Daniel's case, it was more like my high school or my junior high school cafeteria. You either want mystery meat or mystery meat, <laughs> right? You eat what you were given because that's all you have. But here's the thing. There were huge implications possibly looming for Daniel and his, and his friends because you got to understand, number one, the king is the one who ordered the food. Reject the food, reject the king, punishment. Then you had, if you reject the food, it's not only just a sign of you're in trouble, it's a sign of rebellion. The king liked Daniel now. Now, you remember, if you, look at, if you go back and look at, I mean, listen, I mean look at um, chapter 1, verse 7, you looked and you see that he named Daniel Belshazzar, which basically said, Lord, protect this, you know, protect this man. Or, I'm sorry, um, I forget the name of the guy, but Baal, protect this man. All right? So Daniel was genuinely liked. I mean, genuinely liked by Nebuchadnezzar. But now he was running the risk of stepping over the king's, I mean, stepping over the boundaries and not being liked by the king because it could have messed up his witness with the king. And remember, if you, if you read, fast, if you fast forward through the story, you'll see that Daniel was advanced in many places in the kingdom and he ended up serving a long career for many kings. But imagine if it had come to the stop right there simply because of the food, because of the rejecting the food was a rebellion. Not only that, there could have been physical pain. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was not exactly the, the, a really nice guy. 
Um, when you look at how he overtook the kingdoms to be able to bring people to Babylon, number one, he looked at King Zedekiah, who had sons. What he did was this. He killed King Zedekiah's sons in front of him, and then he gauzed out his eyes so that was the last thing he ever saw. That's pretty terrible, right? Now, can you imagine if he does that to a guy who was a foreigner who was his enemy, what he would do to a person who was in his kingdom who rebelled against him? Oh, okay, well, maybe that's not enticing enough. Well, oh, let me tell you what he did to, other, to the other sons of Judah. He roasted them at the stake. So does that food look good now? Does that food sound pretty tasty now? You know, as opposed to death? Maybe, right? But you see, that's the thing. When Daniel asked his request, he wasn't just saying, you know, ah, I, just, I just want a different option. I just, you know, I just would rather have something different. No vegan, no nothing. No, it wasn't just that. Number one, we already said that him eating the king's meat was going to go against his diet, therefore putting him in sin, right? But secondly, we look at the idea that what he was saying was he was basically defying the king with this. He was basically defying the king. And so as you look at this story and you look at the decision that Daniel's making, you, go, you look and you go, okay, well, Reggie, you know, that's one of those, those weird Old Testament stories where they do things that they just don't do in the New Testament, right? You know, surely there's no danger of us having some type of danger happening to us for not giving in to people's worldly demands or not doing what people say, right? I submit to you, Dr. Eric Welsh. Does anybody know this man? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Dr. Eric Welsh. Good. Dr. Eric Welsh, um, you know what, let me, let me get him. Yeah, yeah, I'm, let me go there. Okay, yeah, I'll get there. Anyway, Dr. Eric Welsh, um, he is a man who was from, from um, California. Now, one of, the thing, one of the things that are unique about Dr. Eric Welsh is the fact that he was, um, he, he, he was a bivocational preacher. He was a public health expert and a seven-day Adventist associate pastor at his church. Well, here's the thing. He got offered a job in the Georgia Public Department of Health after a lengthy, and keep in mind also this was in May 2014, all right? So after a very lengthy interview process, you know, they look at all their candidates, they look at Dr. Welsh, and they say, you know what? This guy, this guy is it. This is a great guy. Now, in the midst of his interview, he disclosed that, hey, he was a, that he was a preacher, right? Well, they, despite all that, they say, they say, hey, listen, you're the man for the job. We want you here in Georgia. Come on, you got the job. In fact, the company, um, the Department of Health, even put his name in social media blasts. They sent media releases. They announced it on the news. They made a really big deal about this, this guy because he was so good at, public, at being a public health expert. But then there came a time when the human resource director of the Department of, of, the Department of Health realized that he was a preacher started Googling and found some of his sermons. We think, okay, that's harmless enough, right? He probably just listened, didn't he? He did listen, but he also listened among the interviewees and the other people who were a part of the committee. They, he sent out an email, said, hey, here are the sermons. You guys listen to these. Tomorrow morning, we're going to discuss it. By the time they all listened to all of his sermons, they had heard things from, they had heard things about sin, homosexuality, evolution, creation, he, you know, they had a ton of things, and they decided that they didn't want him to work for the Department of, of Health, simply based on the things that he preached about. Now, you got to wonder, they had just hired the guy, right? So, you know, this guy's making plans to move from California to Georgia, so this is all the way clear across country. Well, to counteract this, what they do is they send him a phone call, 
Well, Dr. Welch has an answer, and so they leave a voicemail. You know, in the voicemail, it spells out that, hey, you know, we're firing you, basically. And I'm summing it up. I'm sure, of course, there's more flowery language like, well, we really like your credentials, and we just think you're a great guy, but we don't think we want you here, right? Um, and so, so essentially, they put this on his voicemail. Well, then they hang up the phone, but yet they didn't hang up the phone. And so in the voicemail in which they used to fire him, you hear people in the background laughing and saying things like, you're out of here, and saying, whew, took care of that, right? And so, so you can imagine that he's shocked. In fact, let me quote what he said. He said this, Dr. Welsh himself said, not only was he shocked about the voicemail, he said, I can't believe they fired me because of the things I talked about in my sermon. I was, it was devastating. I've been unable to get a job in public health since then. And keep in mind, that was in May 2014. So he's been a year without a job. Um, by reviewing my sermons and fire me because of my religious beliefs, the state of Georgia has destroyed my career in public service. All right? Now, once again, that happened in 2014. Okay, guys? That happened in 2014, right? That's at least been a year. You got that? That's the danger that we're in. That hits home for me. I work, I work in the public sector, and yet I preach on Sundays. I don't even want to know what I probably said that would get me fired somehow, some way, right? If you go back through the sermon archives, right? But, that, but that's where we are. If you stand against people, they'll find any reason to take you out of the way. That's the, that's the culture you live in. No longer is this, oh, you do you, I do me, we all, we're all okay, you just stay over there. No, they want you. They want you to be complicit with what they're doing, guys. No longer is it that day where it's like, you're over here, we're over here, we just don't, mm -mm. They are, they are taking your, there is jobs, right? Family, right? Imagine if I make a stand like that and I was fired publicly, right? Imagine what could happen to my daughter in schools. Imagine what could, like, what people could say to my daughter, right? My wife becomes a direct line of fire because she married to me, right? My family's at stake, right? We look at, and it's all because I took an unpopular stance. And see, what it amounts to, guys, is social execution. You see, gone are those days, now don't get me wrong, in other countries, they may kill Christians on beaches, right? But now in America, they're like, oh, no, no, we can't, you know, we can't quite do that. But what can we do? We can take their jobs, we can mess up their families, we can mess up their social, their, their social depictions. So here's the thing, like, imagine making a post on Facebook, right? Making your stance. Now imagine everybody resharing that in their circles who disagree with you and then sending you hate to your wall. Like, imagine us, me saying something and somebody posting hate speech on my wall, right? Right? And they hold no bars. They're not like, oh, I, you know, this doesn't go to you. Like, they're, they're hitting everybody. They're like, I don't like your daughter and this and all this, right? It's relentless, guys. It is relentless. Not only that, our very lives, and I've already mentioned that. Now, you may look and you may say, listen, Reggie, there's no danger in America. Why not? Why not? We have a lot of social chaos already. Who says that it won't escalate? Who says that it won't? Just because we seem civilized don't mean that for the, lack of, for, the, for, the, for the aim of our causes that we won't become uncivilized. So we can't assume that we're okay. And listen, I know, listen, 
I, had to, I sat in a room and I had to let all this sink in, okay? So I want you to know that I understand that what I'm saying is very hard to chew. I know it is. But here's the reality. If you don't start chewing, <laughs> when are you? If you don't start thinking about where you're going to be or how you're going to counteract, when are you going to start? Are you going to start when they kick in your doors? <laughs> no, you shouldn't. But you have to understand that this is a real battle, a real spiritual battle, and we have to know our enemy. And we have to understand what he is doing to make our lives rough, okay? Um, in fact, you may look at this, you may say, Reggie, listen, Reggie, let me be honest, that sounds scary. That sounds really scary. You're talking about having courage, but everything you're talking about, listen, somebody talking about my family, man, I, I would be upset. And somebody threatening my livelihood, that would, that would make me upset, right? But here's the thing, guys. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is not the absence of fear, guys. Listen, there are some real, there are some real fears to have in this world. You know, it used to be a time where I could just drop my daughter off at school and think, you know what, she's safe in the teacher's hands. But there's school shootings now, right? I used to think that, you know, I could take my, I could, um, we could, like, we could go to the bathroom, right? And feel like, you know, everything was fine. I could do whatever I need to do and get out. But now the bathroom space is being taken away, right? So you have to be ready, guys. And listen, just because it sounds scary doesn't mean that we can't still show courage. In fact, John 16, tells us this. It tells us that, listen, we need to encourage, Jesus encouraged us to find peace in him because he says that if, because he says we will have trouble in the world. Let me say that again. He encouraged us to find peace in him because we will have trouble in the world. That's, an, that's, that's automatic. That is for sure. That's not maybe you may dodge the bullet. That's there will be trouble. But then he gives us the encouragement. He says, but take heart because I've overcome the world. And you have to understand that even though God is calling us to be courageous and to stand for what we believe in, he's not leaving us to defend for ourselves. He is with us. He stands with us. He lives in us. And he is calling us to stand and be courageous as he has. Because listen, those who believe in Jesus will suffer with him. Nobody likes to hear that in churches because it's not just about, oh, I'm getting blessings and hallelujah, right? Here's a hard truth. If you believe with him, if you believe in him, you will suffer with him. Nobody wants to hear, I'll suffer. We simply want to know that, listen, when I pray, God rains down blessings and hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. He does that at his will, but he also says that those who trust in him, there will be trouble ahead. There will be. So prepare yourselves, gird yourselves, because there will come a day where you will have to defend and be courageous in the face of adversity. But you know what the world wants you to be? The world wants you to be like the eunuch in, chapter, I mean, in verse 10. You see, perhaps the eunuch was probably from another country, which Babylon had already taken in captivity, right? He'd already known what, da what Daniel and his boys had already gone through. And so when Daniel comes to him and makes this proposition, says, hey, listen, listen, could, you, could we just have a diet of vegetables and water, right? He says, what's wrong with you? 
What, what are you talking about, right? In fact, what he's basically saying to him is, he says, listen, listen, you're going to get me killed and you killed, right? He's like, you want some vegetables? Listen, hey, that's fine if it was just you, but you're trying to get me, get me got, okay? But now here's the thing. What he was also saying was, listen, please give in, because if you don't, I'll get in trouble, and you'll be in trouble, right? And I think that's how the world wants us to cave in. They want us to just be like, listen, this is the way of the world. Get used to it. But that's not what God has called us to be. And even worse, you know what they want to do? They want to silence us so that we publicly adhere to their standards whether or not we agree. Have you ever been in a group of people where someone wants to celebrate sin and everybody's smiling, everybody looks agreeable, but in their head they're thinking, this ain't right. <laughs> right? You know, they're like, yeah, you know, thank God, you know what I'm saying, we just did all this and it's all great. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Ooh, no, this is actually bad, right? We, we can't live in a world, we, we, can't, we can't be silenced in such a way like that. We have to do what our conviction tells us to do. Amen? And listen, the world will make any excuse to justify their means. The world will make any excuse to justify their means. Okay. I debated on whether or not to even step, in this, step into this. And Brother Jeff, if I go too far, just come and pull me down and I'll, and I'll gladly sit down. Um, but one of the things that really bothers me, um, and y'all bear with me here, is... Um, one, of the, one of the arguments I see when we look at the, um, when we look at the, the movement of um, LGBT is that one of these things that they say in some of their conferences and some of their materials and what they make reference to all the time is the fact that they are the new civil rights movement. Um, let me speak freely on that. If you, do you, is, that is that okay, Brother Jeff? Okay. Um, there are some similarities. There are some similarities. Okay. They have leaders, they have a cause. They're willing to do things to project their cause, right? But now that's where the differences stop. Because now from my recollection, from all of history, from people who I've known who've gone through these different things, the civil rights movement was not about the right to sexual deviancy. It was about the right to be treated as a human being when Martin Luther King stood up and said he foresee a day where all of his children would be judged by the, by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin, it was because they were being devalued as people. If you, and, and listen, I don't, I'm not trying to be really touchy here, but if you go back and you start looking through history, there are various laws and everything that were made that, that portrayed African-American people as being property. Real estate and black people were equivalent, okay? Now, here's the thing, as history, as history rolls on, you see things like the Emancipation Proclamation, so that's, that, gives, that gives freedom, right? But it's like, wait, 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 I can't, give them, I can't give this up. I have to keep going, right? And so we have to find a way to make new rules, right? But now here's the thing, the underpinning was that human rights. That was the underpinning. Now, and I'm gonna say this, and, and then I'm gonna move on, okay? I don't know of many people who, who are in the um, LGBT lifestyle that have been hung from trees, burned on a road, had their whole pro prodigy, you know, have their whole lineage taken out, been split away from their families, don't even know their name, all because of sexual deviancy, okay? 
Now, if somebody go back and listen to this message, you know, praise God, you know, I'll try to find a new job. If, you know, but anyway, I'm just, but anyway, but, but hey, but, but here's the reality, guys. That is a very, that is a very hijacking of what King and with all the other people who stood for that did. It was a right to human rights, not to sexual rights. And if you go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, right, it talks about this idea that sexual sin is different from all these other sins in one way. All the other things that we do, we commit outside of our bodies. With this, we commit inside of our bodies. And so, hey, I was born, now listen, God in his infinite wisdom and will, whatever, you know, in his very pleasure, decided to make me black. That's why I'm happy to be black, okay? But it's only because God chose to make me that way. I don't glorify that above anything else. Is everybody following me? I don't glorify my color, my ethnic pride above my love for my Savior. And that's, I think, where we get it wrong sometimes, is that we think, oh, pride. No, pride in Jesus Christ first. You be thankful that he made you who you are. You be thankful that he made you who you are, but you don't put that over, you don't, but you don't put that over anything else, okay? You are a Christian. Your identity is in him first. If you got that backwards, you have an idol, a very dangerous idol that is being exploited. But also, I'm going to stop right there, but that's, that's, that's a whole other sermon in itself. But anyway, um, Anyway, he wants us to be, people, the world wants us to be like the chief eunuch, and we can't let them use any excuse they want. We have to articulate it is what we believe. Question, will you take the courage in the face of adversity when it comes to the things of God? How far are you willing to go for the sake of God's call to stand against the world? God, I'm getting, okay, we're going to have to shorten this, guys. I'm sorry. Um, forgive me for going long, I promise. We'll, um, I'll do better next time, I promise. Um, but courage is critical to developing resolve in a person because it helps us to endure trials. Now, you've already heard me make mention of the fact that um, resolve can't be solid. Resolve can't be solid unless it's tested. If you're paying attention to little things and you're showing courage and, you know, these things, and you're, you're being, you have to have a way to apply what you've learned. Trials exist to strengthen our faith as a snapshot of our growth to the Lord. And even as you hear the distress of the chief eunuch, you would have thought that Daniel would have backed off, but he didn't. So he didn't just say, oh, well, you know, well, I thought I would ask, you know, hey, that's all great. He didn't do that. He went farther. He asked again and said, test me. He said, test me. There's so much in what he's asking. So what was Daniel really up to? When Daniel saw this situation, he wanted to address the legitimate concerns, but he didn't want the unit to have to pay the price. You see, the thing what he was doing, what he was basically saying is, listen, he didn't want to compromise his conviction in an ungodly way. And so what he did was he used godly wisdom. James 3.17 tells us, but wisdom is, that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, then willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Daniel was trying to use wisdom to diffuse the situation. And how did he get that wisdom? From the experiences he's had walking with the Lord. And so when, time, when difficult trials come about, our motive should be to overcome the situation and to glorify God. But how do we accomplish this in a pleasing manner to God? 
four things here, four things. Um, first of all, your heart must be purposed and set. Listen, you can't, go out, you can't go out and have resolve and endure trials without your heart being in the right place. Sometimes the trial shifts your heart into the right place so that you are able to see God clearly. You overcome, the outcome must, out, must grow the believer and encourage others. So it's not just you're doing trials because it's just making you better. You're doing it because it's going to encourage and make others better. You must, it must cost you something. Nobody goes through trials without them costing something. You will lose something. And four, the, you must boldly test an individual out of their comfort zone. So if you're doing a trial and it's well within your comfort zone, it's not a trial. Because trial care, the idea that it stretches you, that it takes you out of a place that you're used to, Right? So we look at and we see that difficult trials are made in these ways. But here are a couple of observations I've made additionally about, about, about trials. Maybe, as Brother Jeff says, when it comes to trials, you're either going into, coming out, or preparing for the next trial. Romans 5.3 tells us that we rejoice in suffering through trials. Now, wow, you rejoice in suffering. That sounds like an oxymoron. Rejoice in suffering, Right? through trials, knowing that the suffering produces endurance, right? First Peter chapter 5.10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So there's hope. If you're caught in a situation, he's promising to do all those things for you. And maybe there's some of you out who think life is good and that there's nothing to worry about. And if you are a Christian and you feel that way, it may be because the enemy doesn't think you're a threat. Maybe you're not going through trials because you're not a threat. Maybe it's not even worth the time. Think about that. Are you embracing or resisting the testing of your faith? Do you see trials as a blessing or as a curse in your life? The Bible tells us that the suffering that we go through, we count it as joy. We count it all joy, right? So, our, so what we go through is not simply something just to hurt us. It's something to purify us, make us more than we were. Now, now that we know that we need discipline and we know that we have courage and we know that we have to endure, the question becomes, what does resolve do for the believer? The simple answer is he rewards it. How does he reward it? Look at verse 13. It says, um, as you see the end of the challenge in Daniel, it says, then let our appearance be observed in the presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and the deal with your servants according to what you see. So basically he makes the choice. He says, hey, listen, let me eat what I want to eat, the vegetables and water versus the other youths of the kingdom in eating the king's food. And let's see who looks better or see if we don't look just like them or better. And so then at the end of the 10 days in verse in verse. Um, so the, um, the eunuch allows this. And at the end of 10 days, in verse 15, it says that the appearance of them seemed better, that they were better and that they were fatter than all the youths that had been, um, been eating the king's choice food. So we see that when God sees a man or woman who is showing resolve in their life, he blesses them. He rewards them for their faithfulness. Specifically, he rewarded Daniel and his faithfulness, right? How did he do that? He did that by, number one, giving him favor with the, with the, with the chief eunuch, right? To the, even allow them to be tested. And then when you look at the end of the test, you see that they were, they were, they were, they were better in appearance and fatter than the other youths, right? Well, then as you look at Daniel and his companions, you see that because of their resolve, God gave them knowledge and skills, right? As you keep reading down, up, down even down to verse 21, you see that 
God gave them knowledge and he gave them skills. He gave Daniel understanding of and all visions and dreams. The men were recognized as great. In fact, it says, the Bible says in, this, in chapter one, it says that none were found greater than these four men. And it's all because they had resolve. They stood when it was unpopular to stand. Knowing, knowing the consequences, understanding that it could have cost them their life more than once. If you read chapter three, which hopefully we'll get to very, I mean, hopefully next week we'll see. But, um, but yeah, so he, he protects their life. He blesses them. He gives them favor. He gives them knowledge. He gives Daniel a long career in the kingdom, even under people who were evil tyrants, right? They could have easily looked at him and said, look, oh, God, you know, was that God believer? Hey, let's kill him off and find somebody who's more, who's more of a blessing to us. Nope. They kept him around. Even in the midst of tyrant kings, Daniel had a long and successful career. But now imagine if he had a compromised. Imagine if he had a gave in. Would he be considered great among those? Or would he be simply another person who bows down to the will and way of a, of a people who mean him no well, no good? You see, the common denominator for, the, for their blessings is the hand of God was at work in their lives. If we're faithful to the Lord in his ways, we'll honor our obedience he will honor our obedience and help us to flourish. You see, the blessings that, they, that Daniel and his friends had, they didn't look like what they want. I'm sure that as they were in Babylon, they were probably praying, Lord, please remove us from here. Take us back home. But that didn't happen. That didn't happen. But did God still bless them? Yes, he did. It didn't look like what they would probably wanted, but yet God still blessed them. And nonetheless, God allowed them to thrive in a foreign land and a hostile in a land hostile to their faith and their way of life. You see, here's the thing. It's possible to thrive in Babylon, but you must learn to endure. All right, you guys, go ahead and stand. Let me get to my final thought. I thank you for bearing with me, but I want to kind of leave you with one lasting story to kind of help you endure and encourage you, hopefully, in the days to come. You see, there was a father trying to get his son to quit. I mean, not to quit so easily. He said, son, you've got to hang in there and not quit. Look at Abraham Lincoln. He didn't quit. Look at Thomas Edison. He did not quit. Look at Douglas MacArthur. He didn't quit. And then he said, look at Elmo McCringle. And his son said, wait a minute, dad. Who is Elmo McCringle? Father said, you see, he quit. <laughs> the lesson, don't throw in the towel when the going gets tough. You see, those who endure to the end will be recognized and honored by God. Resolve must come before true service to, the king, to king Jesus. Without resolve, it is impossible to endure the walk of faith. But to have faith, you have to know the one who gives us faith. And with this being said, you have to understand that the only way we're able to overcome the world, be able not to get swept up in it, only, the only way that we're going to be able to be useful to the kingdom of God is we got to have a relationship with the Lord. Because truth be told, when the going gets tough, in fact, you know, as the song said, when everything falls apart, his arms hold us together. That means that even when you think that the person you care about the most is not on your side, Jesus is. He wants to comfort you. He wants to take you to the end. In fact, he promises never to leave nor forsake us. But you have to have resolve that he is worth 
following. Jesus can't be, Jesus can't be a supplement to our lives. He can't be, you know, I do all this stuff, oh yeah, and I love Jesus. It has to be, I love Jesus, and because I do it, this is why I worship. This is why I serve. This is why I put up with people I never probably would ever put up with in my life, all because I love him. And if that's not your resolve, maybe your priorities are backwards. God has called us into fellowship. And not only has he called us into fellowship, he's called us into fellowship by grace through faith in Jesus. So what that means is that you trust in him, you believe in him, you believe that Jesus the God-man, the one who is 100% God, 100% man, came to earth, put on a skin of flesh, and came down to sacrifice himself for your sin. Now the question is, how do you respond? You believe in that. You trust in that. You accept that as being your, your sacrifice on your behalf for past, present, and future sins. And all of that, you begin to walk with him in fellowship for the duration of your life, reading his word, praying to him, fellowshipping with other believers, and worshiping at church. All right? That's how you respond to God. Because guess what? In the days to come, you know, some of us, we have this habit where we think, oh, you know, I don't really need church. You're going to need believers in the church in the, in the days to come. Because what better way to be able to serve and endure than to suffer and endure with other believers who have one big thing in common. We love Jesus. We believe that he is the truth, the way, and the life and that he will help us endure to the end. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Dear Jesus, Lord, we thank you, God, for this time that we've had. Lord, I, God, um, sometimes my, my mouth goes on too long. And so, God, I pray, God, that whatever needs to be said, God, the words that need, to be, that need to be said, God, I pray, Lord, that they were, that they, God, that they were, although they were passionate, God, that they were a subset of, I mean, they were a set of your, what, what pleases you, what you, what you know to be true, God. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that every man and woman in here, God, that they would gird themselves, God, that they would prepare for the spiritual battle, Lord, because it is here, it is coming, and it is imminent. And so, God, I pray, God, that we would stand firm in the day of adversity, that we would see the example of Daniel, and, God, that we would have resolve, understanding, God, that our resolve is not to ourselves, but our resolve is to know that you are sovereign above all things, you have all things in your control, and you are willing to destroy our enemies and to save those, God, who, have, who, are, who are enemies of you in any day, at any time. In Jesus' name, amen.